There you go. You can hear it. it has a little voice now. Got it. <laughs> we have Craig Burkle here with us. Um, starring um, Cinderella Man as Max Bear. Uh, Doug in the 13th floor. And of course, Tom Ryan in uh, Scary Movie 4. I apologize if I forgot anything else. There's, there's a, many, many other things. Many, many other, other things. Projects. You played Miss Trunchbull with Matilda. Absolutely. <laughs> Enough. That's fine. <laughs> Is that true? You played Matilda in a, in a stage? Adaptation? Well, uh, I was in the play, Matilda, and I played, uh, who's the big woman? Trunchbull. Agatha Trunchbull. 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 I did Trunchbull for about a month and a half uh, on Broadway, and uh, I got hurt. (laughs) There were stunts, you know. There were, were, did you see it? I can't imagine you guys. I've seen the film. Yeah, it was the first film I saw in the cinema. There's a scene where she... This was, well, this was a, I mean, we're not good at the not talking over each other. We're good at, it's just going to be one silent buzz. That's what you're just <laughs> one long. Yeah. Um, I, they cast me in, in Matilda as, as Trunchbull, and I replaced the original uh, guy. Um, and they, they were very specific about what they wanted, and it was different than what he did. And... Uh, the one thing I couldn't quite understand was all of the, they had all the stunt work. And at one point I had to run and do like a flip over a horse, you know, not, not a horse horse, but like a gym horse, you know? And uh, I just didn't get, I didn't understand why. I almost broke my leg, my neck trying to figure out, you know, and working with a trainer, like to do that, they, they trained me really hard. And it's really hard to do that kind of thing anyway, to replace somebody. Cause you're basically just, they don't, you're not, it's not like you're, being put in it's not like you're rehearsing a play there's a guy with a clipboard just sort of going and you walk right over there and you stop you say the line yes go step forward around the desk no right take a right go back around again go right stop light hits you sing the song not now when we do it then you walk it's like it was horrifying day after day after day for like a month never really looking at anybody and then getting on stage with these kids who've been rehearsed so you know, so that if you don't say a line exactly the way you've rehearsed it or they've rehearsed it or the guy before that they've been doing it with for a year, you don't do it exactly the same way. They just stare at you like something out of you know, Westworld or something. And then I go, I try to figure out what was going on. And then I go, oh, I inverted the line and I turn it around. And the kid would like boot up again and just start talking and then just go, you know, it was it was. I didn't enjoy it. I was kind of happy. So is it more nerve-wracking doing a theatre or standing in front of cameras reading the lines? Which one do I prefer? You mean? What's more, what's more nerve-wracking? I'd say standing on stage doing the lines is more nerve-wracking. To me, it would be. It's all, it's all preparation. And um, I think by the time I got out on stage, I mean, it was, it was a bit nerve-wracking because with that particular show, it was, that's an anomaly. So it really doesn't, it, it doesn't really matter. Cause that was su- such an odd experience, an odd way to, to be integrated into a show. But normally if you, if you've got a good director for either one, you're going to be prepared, you know, when you get, when you get there. I mean, I, I did a play uh, years ago. There was, a, I don't know. I don't think it gets done much in, in um, England, but it was, it's very popular here and they're about to open another 
revival of it, but I did a revival about 20 years ago of a play called The Music Man here. And um, that, the woman who directed that, Susan Stroman, it's, it, there was a lot and it was like two and a half hours of just constant moving. It was, it was really, really um, challenging and great. It was really great, but it, it was a lot to do. But if, because she was such a good director, I couldn't wait for the curtain to go up, you know? So it wasn't so much nerves. I mean, those could happen. I think they're both really challenging. Um, and both of your, and, and they demand that you prepare. I mean, I'm just about to start preparing for something. It's a, it's an episode of a show. Uh, and it's a great part, but there's so much, every time I talk, it's like a paragraph that size, you know? So the only, the only thing is I'm glad I've got like two weeks, three weeks to prepare. And you just gotta, you know, just so that when you walk on the set, you're not even thinking about what your lines are. Like you're just kind of relaxed so that any, so that anything that's, you know, any noise, any distraction, uh, whatever the, cause a lot of times when you do stuff like that, you're working so quickly, you don't really get to meet the people that you're working with until you're actually out in front of the camera. That can be a little strange, but you have to be a pro. And the only way to prepare for that is what, what is it that you can control? You know, I can control having my, my lines prepared. I can control um, having, you know, knowing what I want to do with the character and all that. And everything else is going to be, um, it's going to be difficult enough, you know, learning your blocking really quickly. And then depending on what, what which way the director works, sometimes they'll, uh, you'll learn, you know, you'll get out there, they'll give you the direction and then you'll shoot. And then they'll go to the next scene. Sometimes they'll give you direction and then you'll go away while they light everything. And now you've got another hour and a half to just sort of sit, figure out how you're gonna do it, but at least you've gotten to meet somebody. There's no telling which way it's gonna be. And then sometimes if you're on a show um, or a movie, um, they, you know, it'll be a little bit of both. And you never know quite what to expect. They bring in different directors sometimes. Um, anyway. How did you like, start out? Neither, neither are, are uh, they're not easy, you know? And I, I kind of, I think one of the reasons I started doing this was I, I really liked doing it and felt pretty good at it. But I, I think I also like the fact that it didn't feel like work and that I could cut it. In some way, it felt like I was cutting corners in life, you know, but nobody gets to cut corners. So did you start out originally uh, on Broadway or were you straight on the, on TV film? Uh, I, I think I, well, professionally, I started getting work um i did some stage work but but smaller stuff you know and then but i think i started working more in tv and film and that's really what i wanted to do so after college i went out to los angeles and i was there for about 12 years um made some noise and had a great time and you know came back to new york to do this play um the the music man which was around 2000 and uh my family lives here in New York. So I, I just stayed and I like it. It was easier. And I realized, oh, I don't much care for Los Angeles. You know? And I, I, I much prefer it here in New York. Enough is I started, yeah, I would say I worked, it's definitely the front end of my career was definitely film and TV. And now that I'm here in New York, it's really the only place where, you know, well, not the only place. There's, 
there's theater. Well, now there's, there's practically none anywhere. I mean, hopefully it's waking up a little bit, but uh, yeah, I was, I was doing a lot of theater back here. And right before the pandemic, I was doing a play. Yeah. yeah cool. So uh, what got you into sci-fi like with the 13th floor? How did that come about? It's, it's actually, I don't know if it's a funny story, but it's a, it's not even a great story. If there are any young actors out there, I'm not proud, but like I, I, or sometimes I get a script and it would be like the night before the audition. And you really didn't have time to fully prepare. And you just, you had them, uh, maybe you'd had a lot of material to prepare, which I did for this. So I didn't get to read the whole script. So I just read through the material and I learned the material, but I had no idea what was going on. No idea whatsoever. Can you imagine? I mean, I don't remember what lines there were, but it was like a line with, it was a scene with her at the end, a scene with me with, you know, um, the, the Vincent D'Onofrio character, Whitney, where he's, he's my best friend with the long hair. And then a scene with a guy named Avery, who's like a real, the bad guy. And I didn't even know they were the same guy. I didn't even know they were both Vincent D'Onofrio. And I didn't know I'd gone like into, I thought I'd gone back in time, but it, I didn't know the whole compute that was just in a computer. Um, it was, I mean, it was very strange because the, the matrix hadn't come out yet. So, it, and it really was a whole new way of thinking, you know, dramatically. I mean, this idea of, of the same guy going through a portal into a game or a reality that wasn't actually the past. I mean, I'd seen time travel stuff or size reduction or whatever it was. And they inject <laughs> that movie called, or they, they inject like rock help. They reduce everybody to size and they inject them into the bloodstream. Did you ever see that movie? Oh. How well, like tiny little doctors and this guy had this disease. So they went in there to go like to cure his disease. I've seen an episode of Ricky Morty where they go into Santa. <laughs> Do they go to Santa? Oh, it's, it's, it's <laughs> fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they, were t- they did it straight and it was um i can't i can't i can't remember what it was called but it was i'd seen plenty of stuff like that but i this was kind of mind-bending and then when i got it which was really strange but I, I asked them why did i why did i why did you choose me and they said well you were making choices that no one else made in the audition and i was like yeah because they prepared <laughs> oh. you know the, the- because I didn't prepare, bad message to send somebody whose default position is laziness. You know, you're good in it though, for sure. Like, I was watching it last night, and one of the scenes that stuck out the most I took it very seriously, and they were on my ass. I mean, more than I think, more than any movie I had done up, up to that point, they were very mindful of this is the guy who's going to go after. I mean, you know, it was the it was actually the first big lead that I'd had, so it was they were mindful of. Once you're done with the movie, then you got to be the guy who goes out and sells the movie. And you got to go do the, all the talk shows, speak to all the journalists and stuff and be the guy who sells the movie. So as I was doing the film, you know, the director was also sort of directing my life and saying, you know, you can't. I mean, you can see how seriously I take my wardrobe. Uh, he was just like he was telling me how to dress. You know, you got to wear suits like you're wearing in the movie. Like it was very specific. A little bit of like a last gasp of old Hollywood, you know? Yeah. It's a shame as well, because that, that, that particular year, I mean, the 13th floor is a fucking shit hot film. I don't mind saying it. But again, you had The Matrix, Fight Club, Phantom Menace. It all just sort of, it was a crazy year. It was a good year and it was a bad year for 13th floor because it basically 
sums it was, up. It was hilarious because, and I used to, and I, I think I actually went, I was going to go and do a talk show here. And, uh, and they said something like, well, just say it's like the matrix, but without all the special effects. And I was like, yeah, I don't think that's a good thing. to. It's nothing like the matrix. What? Not really. It's similar in style. There's like simulations, but it's nothing like the matrix. Well, that, I think they, that they were just thinking in terms of like, get the people into the seats, you know, the matrix. Yeah. It's, if you handle it well, the Matrix can actually be good promotion because people enjoy the Matrix. There's not going to be a sequel for a couple of years. Here's this other movie you might enjoy. You know, it's kind of there's a way to there's a way to be beaten up by another movie, but it's all salesmanship, you know. So I think that's what they were thinking. You can go. Uh, I don't think it's well. I think do think that's the way they they think in publicity. You're kind of trying to talk somebody into checking out whatever it is that you're selling. I mean, that's the reality of it. And I think they get kind of nervous when they see, and this tends to happen when I was a kid, they made movies like, um, I can't remember the name of them, but you know, it's there'd be, there was like a movie about, remember big, mm. you know, with Tom Hanks. So, but there were like three movies that had come out like the year before where there was one, an actor named judge Reinhold. I can't remember the, the other one, but, one was George Burns, where it's like an 80-year-old man becomes an 18-year-old boy. You know, like a lot of body-switching movies. Like, But it was like within the same year. And what an odd, you know, like cluster. And then the best, you know, only the best movie is going to emerge from that. And I think it did. You know, everybody remembers Big. But through these other two movies that just got lost. And, and they were probably, while they were shooting the movie, thinking, oh, my God, this is so great. Nobody's ever seen anything like this, you know? Well, the thing is, it's like, you know, The Matrix was famous for its bullet time special effects. and But story-wise, it kind of was bog-standard Joseph Campbell story storytelling, you know, your yeah. typical hero's journey. But what I appreciate, and especially from last night, watching The 13th Floor again after, like, what, six years, you basically, the messages in the film, like with the Rennie De- Descartes messaging, it's some what the matrix took three films to kind of cover about free will and uh, what was it um determination versus free will the 13th floor does that in one film yeah i agree i i have to, it's hard to, it's hard to uh, and i haven't seen them for a while i don't really i'll i'll check out my stuff maybe i'll check it out once but now i tend not to watch it you know unless it's i want to see how something came out but i'm not like or is does this if i did something that i've never done before to see how it how it plays but for the most part don't go back and like recheck stuff but I'm, i'd be kind of interested to look at that again because i found the story really intriguing and the more i got into it and and even as time passed i mean we were talking earlier before we started it's affected my writing it's affected the way i look at you know almost everything because it is kind of mind-blowing you know um and i think I, I enjoyed the matrix, but I agree. It was, it was, it, uh, it sort of was a bouquet of a lot of things and it didn't take the story as far. And so they had a little bit room, a little bit more room to make these sequels. And I'm, I hear the next one is, is very good. I haven't, I haven't uh, seen it. When does that, do you know? That comes out next week. We, uh, I'm just going to say this. We uh, interviewed a girl who was a VFX assistant editor on that film. And I asked her off air, is it a good film? And, I could, and she, I could see in her eyes that it was a shit film. <laughs> oh, that's too bad. But 
Well, we'll see. You know, I didn't, I, I really, I, I think I went to the second one. Maybe I caught the third one, a little bit of it. It's, I thought the first one was fine. Like I caught, I got it. And then I just think they're just milking us, you know, yes. there was, I have similar thoughts. Shooting the 13 four, they were talking about what could we do? Would it go anywhere else? And I think the, the general consensus, it was just sort of lunchroom chatter. Nobody was taking it seriously. But I think the general consensus was, no, we're, I think this is it, you know, because it sort of end up in this other world. There's nothing really to go unless you go backwards. Yeah. You know, people want to revisit that world. It's sort of like, re, like these, and I know why they do it, but like, I've always loved the group Squeeze. Um, yeah, and I know they a lot of their big songs just so they could own them because they recorded them for another. So they weren't making it, you know, a lot of people contracts no. for, for money right a lot of people doing the same sort of thing now re-recording yeah. their songs and i say more power to them you know it's great but all of 2000 jeff lynn did that with the elo music yeah recorded like the best of and it's really weird because you, you almost can't tell them apart you know and i've got i i just burned through so many of his albums you know and had to like rebuy them because they were just faded you know, yeah, yeah. every inch of them. Yeah. My I was going to say about the, uh, sorry, Dan, go ahead. No, I was just saying my mom's a big fan of Squeeze. I remember like 2006, she just kept playing the same CD on loop. Those songs ingrained in my head. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have bad associations and good associations with them. Oh, no, it's good. You know what I mean? It's just like when you, what your parents listen to, eventually it's just, it's in your brain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're right. That's my youth right there. Squeeze. Oh, man. Yeah. Hmm. But I was going to say about the 13th floor, about, about the twist. You would never see that coming because it leads up to like a mystery whodunit. And then, bam, you hit with the simulation. You're like, what the? You know what I mean? It's like out of that's, nowhere. That's an interesting point. It's a, we sort of, I mean, what the Matrix, the Matrix was about learning what was happening. And our thing was, get that out of the way, get everything out of the way so that uh, everybody knows basically what they need to know so that you can get into this murder mystery, which ends up being um, like a red herring because, yeah. oh, there's like a third level, which ends up being reality. It's kind of a trick. Especially I mean, the way it ends. It's, it's so complicated that I, you can spoil it without spoiling it, you know? Yeah. You know? Well, like, this one... If you haven't seen it, you wouldn't know what the hell I'm talking about. Well, I'm going to say something that shouldn't spoil it, but right at the last shot, it's like it goes off like a TV and it's like, oh, there's a simulation on top of that simulation. That's a bit meta. <laughs> they left room for that. Like, did any of this exist or are you the only, you know, hmm. I think some of it was the director just going, maybe you're the only reality, you know, and all of this, maybe you just came to see a movie. <laughs> you know, I one think, of my... All these. And um, is the Sopranos? Did you guys ever see the Sopranos? Did you watch it over there? Not for a is long that, time. I'm a bit. I've go back seen on it. it. I've fairly watched it. I'm not the biggest fan, but I enjoyed it. It's there's some things that are uniquely American, you know. Yeah, um, but then and, again, I love Entourage, and that's American as shit. So <laughs> the TV show Entourage, it's like about four, yeah, people growing up in Hollywood. Uh, growing up that's 
I don't know if that's the right term, but uh, it also, I, I could, I'd watch that and go, I, I bet I was in Hollywood. I did. I don't recognize anything. I don't, it was sort of a, a, a nasty version. It seemed like kind of nasty, funny, but, but kind of nasty version and also inverted. Like it, I watched the show a couple of times and every, I thought everybody on the show was terrific. And I actually thought all the writing and everything was terrific, but it's, it's, it seemed to suggest, oh, if somebody becomes a big, huge star, he's kind of the got the mellow, well-centered guy, and all the guys around him go nuts. Where I've, from what I've seen, it's the other way around. Yes, yeah. if you become a, if you're young and they make you into a huge star, everybody around you has to like give you a year to become, an just an ass, you know, and be, you know, because it's 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 not a natural transition and it's, it's too much attention and you get surrounded by people who are, you know, say nothing, but yes, all the time, it's not healthy and it brings out the worst in people. And, uh, I did, so I, I looked at that and I was like, this guy's becoming a star and he's handling it that well. Like he was like the well-centered guy. I never got it. I never. I just it, like it for its comedy. I mean, it hasn't aged well, I admit, but yeah. Well, Maybe I look at it a different way. I just see it as for enjoyment purposes. You know, if it, if, it, if it looked like what it really was like out there, wouldn't I? Don't think it would be very interesting to many people. I think there are reasons. You know, things are films or TV. It's sort of a hyper reality, and you, know, you have to make things interesting. Um, on some level, it's just confection. You know, just can't. I think that's the point of it, isn't it? Because again, you talk, you say the word hyper reality is like it's it's like almost like a parody of itself. It's a reflection of LA of like what it wants to be or what people yeah. think of it to be. I, I just like, I, I, you know, if something I like, that's, I think that's why, you know, if something's a television show, I, I just don't watch that more. And I don't know why it is. Cause I know there's plenty of good stuff. Uh, and, you know, we were also, were we, I don't know if that, if you, if, if this made the actual conversation, but if this was before, but we were talking about like the, the crown, I, I watched the crown and, a bit of an anglophile and i was mentioning i'd gone out with you know some british uh, girls and i love england i love london and all that kind of stuff um and but i never ever understood the monarchy i, I had no idea what was going on and if anything uh it was like a little bit of a history class i knew it was kind of like very light you know um and I don't know how serious, what do people in England tend to think of it? It's pretty divided, to be honest. It's, you know, it's kind of divided. You know, we, we've got um, royalist, anti-royalist, you know, it's kind of like, it, it yeah. gets, you get to that point where you think, is it a bit archaic, a bit of an archaic institution now? You know? I think it's, I mean, it seems like it. I actually understood, I understood it much more than I, I think I did, which it seemed like, oh, this is a, fa it, they kind of, it's almost like this family does everything that radio and TV would do like a couple hundred years later. They're basically the country's soap opera that keeps everybody, you know, you can get involved with this family while the government's sort of doing its work. Instead of like imposing a soap opera on the people, they've got like a family that they kind of shove in front of you that you, you know, that everybody gets all excited about. Almost like baseball or cricket, like you get involved with the family and with the soap yeah. of the family. Well, and and excited that they sort of they're this avatar that represents you and goes and visits all the other colonies 
Yeah, it goes down to that pre pre modernist mindset. I don't I don't know if it was good or bad. I thought the actors were very good, but it seemed to be very simple. And I also thought it's so strange. Nobody but these people probably know what it's like to be in that family. But it's kind of like I kept thinking of like the Munsters or the Adams family more than like this these paragons of virtue. I kept thinking of like a more like a freak show that there's no way to grow up normally when you're. Oh, you're, yeah. you're, I think they get locked away, don't they, from a lot of things. Yes. I'd imagine because totally, it, it feels foreign to me the way they speak and assert themselves. It's like I don't act like that. I've there never is, talked to act like that. Isn't there an act? Yeah, they have. I noticed that, and they the some of the actors did it really well too, which was. But the way Prince Charles speaks is almost an accent that no longer exists. Received right? pronunciation, it's called. What's it called? Received pronunciation. What does that mean? It's the most recognizable dialect of British English. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like, it was sort of like, <laughs> it's, everything was sort of like, yes, it is, it is my little cabbage. My little... <laughs> I just, I don't even think I have a ear for it. I'm one of those people who like, you know, wasn't able to hear the difference between Australia and, you know, those people probably really irritate you. But until I like actually spent time there and realized, oh my God, there are all these different regions and the slight different inflections. It's really kind of amazing. Uh, yeah, there's something that's kind of curious about. I always wonder at what point did the British accent become a New York accent or a Texas accent? At what point did it become an Australian accent? I'd love to know. Hey, I was taught, there was a, actually a British teacher. I think he was with the Royal Shakespeare Company. And there used to be used to be able to get these on tapes, but basically they would, it was a videotaped uh, session where there was some director, I just remember he had giant hair and a big beard, but he would, he'd be working with actors. People would get up and do sonnets or monologues or whatever. And then they would, he would walk you through a scene or a Shakespearean play. But one of the things that he said was um, that when the original plays were done, the closest, I mean, if, if you wanted to know what the accent was like, go to Brooklyn, New York. It was some, it was like a mix between your accent and what you would hear like in Brooklyn, which would be like real, like, you know, sort of like this. Hey, what the hell's the matter with you? What the, what the hell? What the fuck? Jesus Christ, what the hell? What the? And it, there was something very like that, that co- it's actually came out of a Cockney accent, I think. Yeah, Irish. Somewhere between there that that's what the the common accent is closer to something like a Brooklyn accent, which actually makes sense because we came here with British accents, you know, and uh, I don't know how. I mean, it's interesting. And then the Dutch came in and it just became this whatever I'm doing, the hell I'm doing now. Yeah. Yeah. What is your accent? I can't place it. We're not very good with uh, it's hard for Americans to place. I grew up about 30 miles, 40 miles north of New York City in an area called Westchester. So I didn't have the New York accent. And people always think I've come from California or the Midwest. Midwest here is sort of like, is, you know, uh, would the Midwest be, you know, Chicago, Chicago, you know, I Chicago, Illinois, you know, you should come sometimes for Christmas, you know. Or Hanukkah. If you celebrate Hanukkah, maybe you're Jewish. That's fine. Just come. Give you a turkey. You want it? You can like hang a menorah. Whatever you want to do, you know. Or have a tree. You know. 
Uh, and then, and then you go down to California, like Northern California, and the regionalism is more like um, would be closer to like the way you know Robin Williams. The way he's you know Robin Williams was from Northern California. Yeah, you know? yeah, he's very rapid, wasn't he as well? But the times when he's just kind of talking, you know, straight, you know, be that that was a little bit more a little closer to, to like Northern California. Uh, they're very hard to hear. It's very, when you're American, and I'm sure it's the same with you, you can tell, oh, Newcastle, definitely you can tell, you know. For sure. Then, uh, like, uh, and Liverpool, like, and as it goes north to Scotland, where it's just impenetrable. And then you realize, oh, they're actually talking a different language, you know. We've got a strange accent. Um, so we've told this on a, the podcast a few times already, but. Um, where are you? Where are you? Well, I'm in the south of England now. I've been here for 13 years on and off. When I was like where? Uh, Weymouth. Weymouth. Oh, so like down off the co- by the coast? That's where I am. Sean's up in the Midlands. And Mid- Sean, where, whereabouts? Um, Northamptonshire. Cool, cool, it's a little town called Corby. So where are, you, where are you like in between Newcastle and London? No, so um, 90 Come miles on. north of 90 miles north of London is where Sean's at. And about oh. 120 miles southwest is where I'm at. Of London. Okay. So the story is, is that a bunch of Scottish people during the Second World War moved down to this little village in the middle of England for the steelworks. And then we're the offspring of these quasi Scottish English people. Okay, I can hear that. Is that, would that be Penzance too? Around Penzance or? is way, way west. Oh, way west? Yeah, yeah. Cornwall, Land's End. They, they think they're their own communities, but the history is so messed up over here. Yeah. But, you know, you had the Anglo-Saxons push the, the Britons to the east, to the west. And then, like, you've got Wales and Cornwall, and Cornwall thinks it's its own sovereign nation. It's so fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> they have their own flag and everything. Really? <laughs> There's a war between two counties, Cornwall and Devon, all right, about the original pastry. you got the Cornwall pastry, the pasty, and the Devon pasty, and they're like, there was a little skirmish going on. Cornish oh, pasty what? tastes better. <laughs> Pastry wars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Only in England, right? Yeah. But anyway, um, I wanted to ask you, by the way, about the, the lead up, bit of a segue, the lead up to um, Cinderella Man. How did you yeah. come across that part? Well, it's, you know, a lot of these are, they're not, they're just not exciting stories, but, you know, because it's, it's an audition, like I'll get a script from my agent. So that's what that was. And I think maybe I bore some resemblance you know, to the, to, uh, to Max Bear that they, you know, in the sense that, I mean, it was the, actually, it was the same exact height. And by the time when we had a weigh in the first day and I, and I didn't try to do this, but I'd been training for like six months and I weighed the exact same that he weighed in the fight. And we got, well, it, and I wasn't even, I mean, I wasn't trying, but it was like two thirteen or something like that you have to look it up. But, um, the, you know, after I, the, the lead up was, um, I, I went in and I met Ron Howard and I remember we were in a very small room, like, like it was almost like the size of like three phone booths or something. It was like, I was basically like this close to him. And, um, I think I read through some of the dialogue, but there really wasn't very much dialogue. I think he basically wanted to talk to me because this was mainly going to be training. And there was a lot of, he had somebody who was Russell's height. Russell wasn't there because he auditioned me in New York. So he had somebody Russell's height to come in and stand next to me. And um, 
just so he can make sure that we, he got the right match. I mean, Russell, it was Russell's picture. So uh, everything was kind of, you know, he was cast and then they constructed everything around him. And then I just literally the day I found out I got the part, um, I called a trainer in Brooklyn and I just started working out. I just started, I, I went in every day, five days a week for like four months. Uh, and the guy put me in the ring really fast um, so that I could, I could get hit and all that kind of stuff, which was, it was real fun. But um, by the time I got there, I was, I felt really strong and ready to go. And as soon as I got there, they, they fired the original fight coordinator because he was, he was putting together like a superhero fight. And it wasn't like that at all. This was like, you know, old school, really thin gloves, you know, um, meat and potatoes boxing. And uh, so I had to get, the guy who trained me actually trains fighters. So I had to get all that. There's, they fight much differently. I mean, now, you know, it's all science. Like you, you can put, you can, they're like this. You can use your, your arms as armor and the gloves are much bigger. So, you know. Uh, plus the, the science of the, of, of fighting is, has advanced so much. I mean, you look at the difference between even Muhammad Ali and someone like Max Baer, two champions, but totally different styles. And Muhammad Ali would just be able to pick him apart because really Max Baer just had this hammer of a right arm. And, um, and that was kind of the point of the fight. He kept pushing him around to the right. So he couldn't use this powerful hammer. And then he took, you know, he took him over and it was really just, it was great fighting. It was, it was almost what Muhammad Ali was. And if you, it took me a while to figure out uh, why Muhammad Ali was like considered a genius, which was because it's basically chess with hitting, you know, you, yeah. you're really observing your opponent. And, you know, you're circling and, 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 you know, faking and, and, and all that kind of stuff, just to see what, you know, where does their arm go? What are they trying to protect? If I go this way, what are they trying to protect? Oh, that's probably a soft spot. You know, um, it's really smart. You're doing all that stuff to unlock your opponent, figure out how you're going to take him apart. Someone like Muhammad Ali. And, uh, and then there were guys like George Foreman. They were just these human refrigerators that were just like, <clears throat> <laughs> You're just going, you're fighting a bulldozer, you know, he doesn't need to play chess, but uh, it's a much, it's a much different sport than it was then. So I had to get any preconceptions out of my head and even a little bit of the training that this guy gave me uh, out of my head and just sort of play the, play the character. And then um, I think we were both ready by the time we started shooting, because they, like I said, they fired the fight coordinator and, uh, and while I was up there, uh, Ron Howard decided that he wanted to shoot the fights in succession in order. So that meant my fight was being dropped to the back, which is fine, but it also meant I'm going to get like another two months of training because I decided to stay up there. What the hell, you know, I'll just keep working. And, and I had fun up there too. Uh, and as long as I'm being paid, might as well stay up here. And uh, by the time I think we got into the ring, he'd shot, um, uh, Ron and, uh, and Russell had shot enough that, uh, you know, felt really, Ron felt like he knew how he, exactly how he wanted to shoot the scene, which he didn't know at the beginning, you know, took all those fight scenes basically to rehearse and get up to the level of fighting that scene. I thought that was a really wise decision. 
And I think Russell was more at ease with being a boxer in the ring. And I had been working all this time, coming in and looking at the filming and all that kind of stuff, getting used to the what it was I would be doing and working in front of. So I th- by the time we started working on the fight, I think we both felt really confident and uh, we're ready to, you're essentially dancing together. You're not really hitting each other, but we knew how to make it look like that. And we were, I think we were both worked well together. So it really looks like, you know, there's a, there's a moment, uh, you know, where this, he flicks the switch and now I'm, I gotta, now I gotta kill you. And I tried to warn you, but now I'm going to take you apart. And, uh, and I think the only thing, and I was really proud of that. I thought that that came off. I thought that was a really wise decision. Again, great director just knows, just like I said, with, with, you know, I couldn't wait for the curtain to go up on this play. I, I love the fact that I just, this guy really knew what he wanted. So you didn't really feel lost in this because you can't learn to box in under two years. You know, you, we weren't boxers, we were playing boxers. So it really helps to have a director know how to shoot you because he's spending your energy every day. It's an unnatural thing to box every single day. And so we were really exhausted. There were guys on set and who would, who would come to your, your apartment afterwards and deep massages, a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of physical work, a lot of backs going out. My back went out once, you know, uh, couldn't help it. It's just, it was, it was, you're just a big bruise. I mean, I was just so swollen by the time I went home, but uh, it was, it was so great. I mean, it was really, really fun. Is it true that the audience was made up of mostly cardboard cutouts or was it inflatables? Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Why not? In that fight scene that you, it, it'd be fun. It's now that you can, um, you really can stop and study a picture I haven't done this, but if you look at some of the hits, because we never actually hit each other. We're always coming really close or you can pull your punch. You know, I can make it look like I'm hitting you really hard, but I take all the steam off of the punch at the last minute. It's just a trick. But, uh, you know, if the other person reacts, it really looks like a hit. But if you're doing the face, you can't you can't really go like that and, and hit somebody's face. And so what they would do is just for that moment, they'd extend the glove. It's almost like a bit of animation. They'd inflate the sides of the glove in the picture. It goes by too quickly for you to see it. But they kind of move the glove over so it literally hits the face so that if the guy turns right, you actually see the impact that's not happening. I think that's pretty much what sets us apart from... Uh, if you, I went back and saw... Uh, Raging Bull, which is a fantastic movie. Yeah, brilliant. This point for me, anyway, was was the boxing movie for like just that, to capture the grit of like, a real fight. Uh, I, I like that. I actually liked the original Rocky too a lot, uh, but this was different because I mean they had they couldn't really show the same impact and they couldn't really hit each other, so it was shot at an angle. They were shot at angles that didn't really. Uh, communicate that same sense of impact and raging bull didn't look like a fight to me anymore after i had done this it doesn't look it didn't look real yeah you know i'm curious to know like when they're filming uh you, you're doing these uh the, the 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 last scene in particular with russell crowe is it like do you film is it a long take or is it kind of like oh no no it, we wouldn't have been able to do that. it's i mean that's you have to you have to give it up to real boxers you know that um yeah, 
first of all, every single step we took um, was choreographed. And, and we, we decided instead of, um, some of it was a time consideration, but I think these things tend to happen for a reason. Uh, they didn't want it. They knew that they, you know, this fight coordinator had come in originally and it was like a spy, was like Spider-Man fighting Thor or something. It just didn't make any sense. It was too modern, too, you know, too, and, you know, it just didn't look like what, what the old fight looked like. And that's when we decided, hey, we've been studying this fight. The actual fight is on film. Why don't we just transcribe the actual fight? And so I actually, you know, I, I, are you guys boxing fans? Yeah, on and off. Yeah. Well, Sean, more, more so. It's all like you can control the other guy. You can just sort of move him around if you if you can dominate or just, you know, you can move him into a corner and work him or you can actually. If you know, if he's a a, a if he can't like switch to Southpaw or something like that, then you can just sort of move him so that he can't. Uh, cutting you- off his strong side. Yeah, I know what you mean. And uh, which was ultimately what he did in, in the movie. And I actually didn't, I'd never had that experience because I'd never really, I've never and probably never will box like a full match. So I just thought um, uh, whatever happens, happens. And as, we, as he was moving me around, I actually felt that frustration. It was really annoying. I could, it's almost like if, you, if, if I'd been choreographed to, to throw a punch, it would be impossible. Cause I'm moving this way and I can't, I can't, it was, there's frustration on my face. It's genuine. I mean, a lot of what was coming up was genuine. I think they, I think that was also part of it too. You know, we're, we were working real hours anyway, so they might as well make it as hard as they possibly can, but especially by the end of the fight, because we didn't do the entire fight that would have bored the audience silly and it would have been too long. Uh, but uh, they, they picked, the highlights of the actual fight. And part of it was him, you know, that was in the story. He's studying the film and he knows to move me around. And um, I think there were, you know, so that by the time we got to the end of the fight, those, those classic moments, there was another one which we just couldn't get. There's a moment where I throw a punch and actually lose my, my balance. And that's on the, in the real fight. And he's sort of like laughing, like he's trying to make it funny, but he's really kind of pissed off at the same time. And, I really, really wanted that shot because there was like blood coming down. It just looked like the Joker, just mad clown in his hair. And it was just like, but we couldn't get it. We couldn't get it. It was going to be in like super slow motion. It was my bright idea. Let's get this thing. And I think we lost like an hour because it was just really, really hard to trip and at the same time play this moment and then fall. And I had to keep falling. Um, but uh does that answer your question? Yeah, fucking absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. No, I'm, just, I'm just trying to be careful not to talk over you, that's all. But, yeah. Because uh, yeah. usually we're like, we, we never normally talk over each, each other, but always like, you know what I mean? And obviously I don't want to cut you off at any point because everything you're saying is on point. Um, it must have been a real buzz because, you know, it, it got nominated for a lot of awards, didn't it, back in 05, 06? I don't know. I, I don't know. I, 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 if it did, I'm, I'm not... Sure. I did a TV show here a couple of years ago and um, it got nominated for, oh no, it, it won the Peabody Award, which was for, which was for, for writing, you know, okay. and, which was great. Um, I think there was some nominations. I think we won, I think we won awards. You know, it was basically about, it was a show about these two women. So it was winning a lot of, you know, 
awards for breaking new ground and, you know, female oriented drama and stuff like that. And it, it kind of preceded the you, uh, the you too, or me too, the me too, uh, movement, the U2 movement's been going on for quite me <laughs> Bono, Bono's been around for a long time. But uh, yeah, right as Me Too was breaking, our show was getting canceled. It was called Unreal. I don't know if you get it over there. I think it's on Hulu or something. But I've actually was, been looking into it, yeah. Looks, looks all right. It was great. It was great. It was, uh, but it was a real role reversal. I was basically playing the part that would normally go to the female because most TV is, you know, uh, male dominated. And this was basically about these two women, like sort of taking over the, their, they worked on a reality show. It was like The Bachelor. And the woman who, who wrote the show and produced the show, uh, Sarah, uh, yeah, Sarah Gertrude, Sarah Gertrude Shapiro. Yeah, Sarah Shapiro um, actually worked on The Bachelor for like 10 years and it and really wanted to like tell the story of like how they manipulated people. And, you know, it's kind of an evil, toxic atmosphere. So it was a very dark show. It's, it's really good. I'm really proud of it. Uh, but uh, we kind of missed it was it was also a little mistimed. It came a little too early. It preceded, I think, what the wave that could have ride road for a couple more years which is unfortunate we don't get hulu over here but i'll be sure to try and look it up what was it called again cool. real it's good cool unreal so how long between cinderella man that and before you uh started working on scary movie four because that was a year later wasn't it i think it was a year later um i think that's what yeah put me on their radar because i think they wanted somebody they're very smart uh david zucker started he was and all that kind of stuff so he's sort of he kind of fathered that that kind of humor i mean all of that i mean scary movie was very much had its roots in in an airplane and kentucky fried movie uh if if you guys have never seen that but that was that was the first movie that those guys made and then they off of that they had the money to make airplane but they actually started when they were in college. They did this thing called Kentucky Fried Theater. This was the Zucker brothers and Jim Abrams who wrote the, those movies. And um, not scary movies, but that was just David Zucker apart from the other two. But when they were when they were at the triumvirate, they, they were at the University of Wisconsin and they like rented a space and they did the show. And I've, to this day, I've heard people say that show that these three college guys did with some of their friends was the single funniest thing they've ever seen in their life. And it was the guys who would come up with Airplane. And then I, it, for me, I, I, I never saw the first scary movie, but I heard it kind of, you know, that it actually got good at two, three, four. I think it ran out of gas a little bit. Uh, but those were the ones that those guys did, or David Zucker did. Um, and I really sat at his feet, like was tell me everything because I just wanted to learn as much as I possibly could. And I knew that part of the reason that I was cast was, I mean, I love comedy, but it just so happens I've been I've been doing like a string of um, films that weren't, you know, they were they were dramatic films like, you know, kind of heavy 13th floor, uh, Cinderella Man, Long Kiss Goodnight. Uh, and I was kind of getting known as a, a heavy which I loved. I didn't want to play like, uh, even with 13th floor, I love the fact that I got to play a bit of a nasty guy towards the end, you know, like 
there was a guy who could download into me and and actually become like the bad guy. I just love that. And I, I don't know if I would have been interested in otherwise. I just started to get really bored with playing the guy you want, you know, your daughter to bring home. And it just got a little. That's it's one not of my favorite a, things is when a, uh, an actor who's predominantly doing straight roles. I mean, one of my favorite examples is, uh, is it Kathy Bates? She oh. won an Oscar for Misery. And then next thing you know, she's playing Adam Sandler's mother in Motorboy. That scene where he's like, you see that bed sheet over there? <laughs> Well, that's the other, that's the other, uh, somebody like De Niro, who's doing, uh, you know, got known for Taxi Driver and this brilliant, I mean, brilliant actor, um, to see him and like, you know, meet the Fockers or whatever it was like, meet the parents originally, wasn't it? Meet the parents. Yeah, yeah that was the first one. Bad, bad grandpa as well. That's crazy. Oh, years later. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and it's, it's, I think that's, it's, it can go either way, you know, either I put, you know, Usually it's really, it's really fun to see. And it's, it's a bit of stunt casting. You take somebody who's known for being this really intense character and then they get known for doing comedies. Like I think Christopher Walken, who's brilliant, he got known for doing, you know, he'll lampoon himself and he, he's so talented. He can go back to doing the really serious stuff. People watch him do anything. And I think if you, and, and part of it, I think he's very cage. He's a very smart person. And I think he probably realizes the crazier you come off, the more people will buy you as anything, you know? So you, like, and De Niro and Pacino used to be able to do this, but it's a different market. You have to go out and do talk shows, but it also helped that these guys, nobody ever knew what these guys were like in real life. And it made it easier for them to jump back and forth and do different things. Once you see them on a talk show and maybe they say something a little, I mean, you're, you're, you're bound to say something that just makes you seem like a normal person. Like I'm doing now, like, like back in the day, I don't think they ever would have done something like this. Whereas I think it's really great that, you know, I don't know how healthy it is to, you know, um, to not know how things are made, you know, that you're, you, you really shouldn't get lost in this world. It's not actually happening. Don't waste your life trying to make this real. You know what I mean? And if you really love it, then learn about it, go to school for it, but don't get lost, you know, in all this stuff. It's just, it's the same with Leslie Nielsen in Scary Movie 4. You know I mean? He was known for Dracula and the next thing you know, he's doing Naked Gun. That worked for them is that is cat exactly right. Leslie Nielsen, I think the first time I'd ever seen him was the Poseidon Adventure. He's the captain of the Poseidon Adventure, just straight ahead guy and, and uh, trying to save a ship. And he's the first guy to, you know, to die, but he's like, this, the, this hero. And I think he started, he did a lot of B movies and uh, he would have been in a movie like this. It was perfect. He fit right in. And I think that's what they wanted. They didn't want funny people. They wanted people who to play it stri- as if they were doing a serious drama and then say the, ser- the, the ridiculous things. I mean, the one that everybody knows is um, sure. I'm not joking. Don't call me Shirley, you know, and I had to learn. I mean, I, I saw that in high school and I, I died laughing when I saw airplane. I, I couldn't breathe. I'd never seen anything like it. And and then to be working with them and realize, oh, this isn't as easy as it looks because you want to laugh. You know, it's ridiculous. You're saying all this crazy shit. Some of the runs they wrote, I mean, the scary movie runs, the stuff like, did he have a nose? Yeah. <laughs> Last night. That's Yeah, yeah. <laughs> through that. I couldn't get through it. And she was so great, you know, uh, she's so, Anna Faris is so talented. 
and so and 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 was second nature to her because this was the third movie that she'd done uh, of the scary movies and i had to kind of catch up and learn how to do this thing that i've been watching and loving but it's really hard to do your expressions are amazing, though. That's what makes the comedy gold is your expressions. Like you use them in your serious roles, whether it be 13th Floor, Cinderella Man, but seeing them in Scary Movie 4 is like, it's hilarious. Even though it's and not. I, I was the reverse. I watched Scary Movie 4 before I watched 13th Floor. So I, I, I assumed you're a comedy guy. <laughs> so that's, and yeah. that's because you're probably waiting for some slip on something and fall through, bang my face on a piece of glass or something. But we, we hold it. How much of that is also if you take an actor? Because I, I would think, wow, that's really, you know, you take an actor who just made some noise in comedy or something and you put them in a dramatic role. So much of it is lighting, the way it's shot, camera angles. Uh, I'm trying to work, I'm working on something right now and we're realizing, and it's very, and we want it to be a comedy, but we, but we're, you know, it's kind of a serious issue. And, um, and we, we got to thinking about, um, have you ever seen, um, oh, what's the Kubrick movie, uh, Dr. Strangelove? Yeah, the yes. one about the bomb. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, yeah. Do, do the kids, are the kids watching their Kubrick? Are you guys yeah. watching your Kubrick? Oh, we're well versed on we're, it. We're, 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 we're fucking nerds, so like we, we love all that stuff. He's the master. I, I don't know that there's ever been anybody, there'll ever be anybody like him. And I didn't realize how dense every movie was. Like, you, I don't know that he was doing it in those earlier films, but definitely like Eyes Wide Shut. Whatever you, I remember it came out. And I was like, eh, eh, it's too bad that that's his last movie. But since then, and there's a guy, actually, he's British. I want to say Ager, maybe his last name is Ager. It's collate of learning. If you look it up on, on YouTube, I want to give him a shout out because I love this guy's channel and he's, and he takes deep dives into these movies and he just, some of them like eyes wide shut, he'll walk you through almost frame by frame. He does it with the shining too. And he shows you that Kubrick was making, he's playing like triple lever, three level level chess. Like he's like, you need to look at everything in the frame, the artwork, the way that, I mean, he's, he's telegraphing you and, and linking scenes together that wouldn't have anything to do with each other. Like that all of the stuff you've seen eyes wide shut, right? Did you get all the way through? I mean, I'm a big fan of uh, full metal jacket. And oh, that's, well, that's another one too. It's segmented. So it's cut in half. Like I used to love watching the first half and didn't watch the second half because I thought it looked like a standard movie until you realize these movies are the halves of the movies are talking to each other. And there are, there are motifs like visual motifs that you see in the first half. And then you see in a completely different, like when they're actually in war, you see that the scene is set up actually. Yeah. And it was done in London. That's the yeah. crazy part. Right. Well, they, they, they had to plant palm trees. Yeah. In London. Insane. And like Vincent D'Onofrio in that is something else. That that scene towards the end is chilling. Yeah, great scenes in cinema. So you can imagine, like I I had seen that movie a, a couple of years before, well, more more than I think that came out in like eighty nine or ninety something like that. Eighty seven. Was it eighty seven? Yeah. Thirty in. So I was already like I had I had just gotten to LA, and I hadn't worked at all. I saw that movie and I thought this guy is. That's one of the great 
performances, I think, of all time. I just love that. And that's his first film. That was his first film. And he's, and it's staggering. It still gets me. And then to, to meet him and then work on this movie with him and have to, couldn't go there. You know, I had to, I mean, I saved it for after the movie, you know, because we, you know, you have to be able to stand up to this guy, you know, um, but he was, it was really, it was really something. I just think that's an amazing performance. He's still <laughs> such a, he's such a terrific actor. He really is. And he's so passionate. He just, I just bought a book of his poetry. Um, and he's very active on Twitter. I don't know if you guys do that, but he's like really active on Twitter. Um, got a big heart. He's a good guy. You know, yeah. Attention to detail. Like even in the 13th floor, like he's got, cause I, I used to work uh, with a software department uh, I was a French-speaking IT analyst, but I had to liaise with the software department, and he got the perfect uh, attention to detail—the the the black rings of the eyes of someone staring at a screen all day. Yeah, and I'm like, yeah, he just—it's—it's it's just the way his mind works. He's—he's he's just a, a true artist. I find him really inspiring. Good guy. Yeah, you guys still in contact? Yeah, you know, we got in contact. I think we had a kind of—it uh, wasn't there wasn't anything bad about it, but you know, sometimes you just go to work and there was so much, it, it was, it was a big, it, it was a big bite for me. I'd never played anything. It wasn't with, with, I'd done plays, blah, blah. This was, you know, to carry a movie or be the lead in a movie. I don't say, I don't want to say carry it because I certainly had help, but to be the quote unquote lead guy in a movie was in order not to be unnerved. I kind of had to just, there was, I had to make sure I was absolutely prepared so there really wasn't time for socializing or, you know, hanging out between. I just wanted to make sure that I was, you know, you know, get to the point where they've got enough film on me where I'm not going to get fired. You know, that's the idea. <laughs> just survive. Um, and, uh, but it was more afterwards. And I, and I think within like the last, it was during the pandemic where um, we, we were just sort of like, communicating more and more like on Twitter and stuff. And one of these days I'm sure we'll get together. Um, yeah. Nice. Got yeah. to do like a revisit that thing. It's hard. Cause the movies, I think it's more of a cult thing, you know? Well, I don't want to sound like a nerd, but I, you know, I had a poster of the 13th floor of my wardrobe with the, just the, you stood there with the green grid and it says question everything. You know what I... I've got, I've got it up there right now. <laughs> be even nerdy. <laughs> oh yeah. Good, man, fly the colors. But I never liked the the um, the catchphrase or the, the logo, whatever. It was like, you can go there even though it doesn't exist. Yeah, that's a bit. I, yeah, I get you. What? Yeah, it's a lame line, but it's it just was, that typical. I just thought, and I remember him coming in. I remember, the, well, the guy who came in with the line, I remember him announcing, and I just went, nah, like inside. I was, <laughs> was, was it actually okay. Don? No good. Was it, was it what's his full name don the trailer guy oh i'm not gonna tell you <laughs> uh, he's dead now he's been oh, dead that, for... oh the trailer guy I'm up with the phrase for the poster but uh oh i don't remember that guy's name but i know the, the guy who goes like in a world yeah yeah, yeah. I, I think that was one of his last i don't think he's with us anymore i don't think so 2008 i think he went because like inception came along and sort of changed trailers forever yeah, yeah, yeah. With the, <laughs> look at the trailers are always, it's like kind of, da, 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 and then somebody says one line, there's silence, 
and then your rock and roll song and then the, the pictures start tumbling really fast you know it's the same it's like they've got everything high in sound i refuse oh. to get tricked by trailers anymore since halloween kills because halloween kills trailer look bad ass and then you watch it and it's a bit of a wet fart isn't it that thing that have you watched it which one was it hollywood uh, halloween? Ha- ha- halloween kills it's the sequel to the like newest one new one no good I wouldn't say it's bad, but it's just like a bit a bit tame for a sequel that's like that's promising loads of kills and stuff. Not like I'm a I'm a, I'm a kill guy, but is it like a the new they did like a Halloween that was reboot? They they they, they um is the sequel to that? It's like the original, the 1971, I think 78. I'm not sure, but they 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 cut all the others and then made a direct sequel to that. In 2018, oh. okay, and then the sequel to that one came out in October for Halloween, and then it, it, I mean, it was half decent, but the trailer made it look so good, and then I was like, I'm, that's it, I'm done with trailers now. I watch the film when it comes out, you know. Yeah, that's, that's my end. You know, I'm I, back in the 90s again. We're going back to Don, the voiceover trailer guy. You know, sometimes I'd say things about the movie that wasn't the movie. <laughs> <laughs> And, and they got they've gotten pegged for that a lot too. They'll show you footage like from a scene that got cut. Yeah, and you're like, I came because I wanted to see that. You know, it's yeah. When you mentioned that, I remember Rocky Four trailer from the original 1986 Rocky Four, and um, there's a trailer in the trailer. There's a scene where he's with the boxing commission. They're just shutting him down, saying we're not going to sanction this fight. But Stallone's done a director's cut of Rocky Four that came out last month. Came out. Yeah, that seems it's it's tremendous. Really? Because that's when they really lost me. I actually liked three. Which one was with? Oh no, yeah, two was when he goes back. He he has the rematch with Apollo Creed. Three was Mr. T, which I actually thought was pretty good. Yeah. And then four, I was like, "What?" That became a cartoony. Ivan Drago. Yeah. Um, There's a YouTube book. Like the glistening. I was like, enough with the glistening. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's a documentary of Stallone talking about it all through 2020 when he's saying, like, because of the pandemic, he had nothing. Oh, you saw it. The editor, right? The guy, yeah. the guy's editor, still talking, and then you hear, like, you hear the film, and he's just, like, bumbling quieter. Like, he doesn't stop. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. And, yeah, he said that in 30 years, he's matured as a human being. Yeah. And he, he has more confidence now, whereas when he was 38 years old or however old he was, he, he didn't have the confidence to hold certain scenes yeah and i can I, honestly i can i can promise you it, it's worth watching i will no i'm i'm looking forward to that because i i genuinely love those movies and i love boxing movies it's just so it's so basic it's, you know i mean you it's well played then then the fight actually feeds the story you know well, um i i remember, i absolutely remember seeing the first rocky it was going out of my mind it was so fun uh by the time that scene kicks in, the bell goes off. It was all just so great. The sound design, every aspect of it was so great. He's climbing up the ropes, you know, awesome. Uh, well, and, well, you know, you can get sequelitis. I'm glad he did that. That's really cool. And I love that we're in that era. Like I was saying before we started, uh, that I, I, I was, was just watching it um, like halfway through, like watching it the second time. But they've taken this you know the 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 Beatles did a documentary 
the making of, of the album Let It Be, which was originally supposed to be called Get Back. And um, it was kind of dark and sort of shuffled away because it was depressing. You kind of see them breaking up and how they're not getting along. And it's you don't want to see them that way. And um, it kind of got forgotten and they didn't release it on DVD. And then it was, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the, uh, the director uh, who put it together, who did, uh, oh, I know you guys would know it. And I'm now I'm forgetting the name. I'm going blank as well, don't worry. The big, the big trilogy with uh, Middle Earth. What's, what was oh, it called? Uh, Peter Tolkien. Um, Peter Tolkien. <laughs> Three men sharing a quarter of a brain got there. We worked together. And we <laughs> got that. <laughs> um, yeah. Peter Jackson found the, the original footage that they didn't use. It was like 60 hours of footage, 50 hours of footage. And so it wasn't that depressing. And you actually see all of it. You see, I don't know if you guys are Beatle fans or not, but I was a crazy Beatles fan. And to actually, you actually see Paul in a chair coming up with the idea for Get Back and playing through it for the first time. You actually see it like being born. It's kind of amazing. And then you, he, you're kind of like, come on, come on. Cause he doesn't know the song yet. You do, you know, you're like, come on. And these things, he's trying to find the right words. And you're like, no, 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 that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Come on. It's amazing. And then you also see like John Lennon talks about how he doesn't have confidence and that he used to get really scared before every concert, you know, I'm a big fan of the doors and though Jim Morrison would have his back Mor- turned to the back turned to yeah. the crowd. So, yeah, no, the same with uh, the lead singer from Joy Division. He had a big thing about performing Ian, on crowd. What was his name? I'm not 100% sure. Ian something, though. Ian Curtis. There we go. I think that's... I like that when the, when guys admit that. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's I, really down to earth, isn't it? Explains his drinking, I guess. Yeah. Uh, that's a lot to handle. And you just assume these guys came down to earth and just assumed the mantle of, like, rock stardom. You know, or someone like Sting, but I bet Sting gets a lot out of like I know the guy's like a, does a lot of yoga. You know, a lot of that I'm sure just helps with stress. Getting up in front of people is, you know, I was uh, the same on my way here. You know, I was nervous about meeting you. You know, I'm just like fuck. Really? I mean, you know, I totally, I totally get. It. But this man's this man's my idol, and you know, thirteenth floor was a big deal for me. Uh, you know, yeah, man, uh, top top three movies of all time. And, and I'm talking to you right now. It's crazy. That means a lot to me. Yeah, you know, I've got Thank a book. You. I've got a book coming out in ten days, and you know, thirteenth floor is part of that journey. Oh, that's nice to know. Well, you're on, or if, whatever you're on, like you're on Twitter and all that stuff. Instagram. Or I mean, I'm happy to tweet it for you. Help you oh, if man. I. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I look forward to reading it too. You know? Yeah. Well, I won't. You know, my two golden rules as a writer: don't insult the reader's intelligence and don't waste their time. So. You'll enjoy it. This is now I'm watching. That's the thing. And it's the reason I, I'm not going to sell you on, on watching uh, get back. Cause it's quite a, you know, it's a slog. If you're not into it, it's, it's long. It's like, it's in three segments and like each are over two hours. It's a lot, but if you're a fan and really what you're watching is you think the Beatles, like just they, all you ever really heard was the music, but you see how much work it took, how hard they worked 
just learning how to work together, like up until the end, they had to keep readjusting because it's four guys with real strong personalities. And they're, and it's getting to be the end. Like it feels like the natural end, you know, for them. And they kind of know it. Hmm. And, and so, and they were going to do one more album after this. They were going to do Abbey Road. It's really amazing that they held it together. And it was all because of this work ethic. And I just seen Paul McCartney say, you've got to have, you've got to be heading to something. You can't just drift around you know you got to be you got to have your eye on what it is that you want to do and john lennon was more like i kind of like drifting you know but get all those energies in the same jar and shake around it works but it's not easy yeah and john lennon said himself on an interview like you know the beatles have been together five years before they were even famous so it'd been a long time that they were together it was too much that was the other thing was everybody blamed Yoko and you kind of say, she just sits there quietly. She's very respectful. And you even hear Paul say, we've never seen him this happy. We love him. So we want to be happy. When they broke up, Yoko Ono and John Lennon broke up for about 18 months and he went off the rails and he referred to it as his lost weekend. Right. But it was like a year, you know, a year and a half. That's a long weekend. Yeah. And he was drinking with, um, yeah, he was drinking with, uh, Nilsson and uh, the Vampire Club, Alice Cooper, they call it the Vampire Club. Yeah. yeah. There's something I wanted to mention as well. You're talking about like how this Beatles documentary, or this rendition is like it was based on footage that they'd found. And one of my favorite stories when it comes to footage being found is the 1927 silent film Metropolis. Yeah. Are you familiar with that one? Yeah. It got lost. Was it Bernal or what's his name? Uh, Bernal, who directed it? Oh, I can't remember his name. It was a German guy. Yeah, I think that was it. But, um, cool. Well, a lot of it got, it didn't do too well when it first came out. And um, a lot of the footage got lost because of World War II. And it wasn't until about 2010 that someone found 95% of it in a, in, a, in a vault in Argentina. Oh, really? I didn't know that. And they went to great lengths to, you know, restore the, the negatives and then finally presented it. You know the Argentinian cut of Metropolis. When did when did now? Uh, the original, the Argentinian. Uh, oh, I think 2010. I want to say because oh, it was okay. a couple of years before that that they found it by pure accident. In Los Angeles, they you would have um, they'd show silent movies and they'd have like a, an orchestra. They'd orchestra. They'd have an orchestra come in. I think that was one of the movies. You know. Uh, they'd have an actual orchestra. They'd, ha- they'd have someone come in and like write almost a symphony around the movie. It's, it's beautiful. One of my regrets is missing uh, about 30 miles away from my town is a place called Bournemouth, bigger, big, yeah. you know, biggish city. And they had in their international theater, they had um, a, a show of Star Wars with a live orchestra and I missed it. I regret that. Yeah. That would have been awesome. I really sure. want to see Book of Mormon. Yeah. Is that any good? I hear a lot of good things. It, well, it's the guys who did South Park and, you know, Team American stuff. So it's, I never saw it, but I hear it's pretty great. Like, and it's a great thing. It's a great first show if you've never, if you're not into musicals or something like that, because it's so funny and so, you know, offensive. Uh, but in a way that's kind of, I never thought that they were offensive just for the sake of being offensive. I always thought they were making a point. These were really smart guys. Like, I, ne- I never found South Park offensive because, it actually seemed like it was sane. Like mm. it was at the core of that show is actually kind of sane. It's just all the craziness we're all living, you know? It moves with the times that always bring up something relevant. 
yeah, sometimes it's offensive, but like it's, it's always relevant at, at the time, you know. Subject like you can't talk about that. It's like, no, you can talk about anything, anything that's crazy, you know. Yeah. I mean, maybe in certain societies, but this is quote unquote, you know, a free society. We should ought to be able to make a movie about it. If we can't, that's kind of weird. Why are you so concerned about that? That's, you know, I like that those movies exist, even if I, you know, some of them can be offensive, or I think shoot low, or the, the guys who are making them don't quite have what it takes to to comment on something like that or maybe i don't like whatever i love the fact that there's you know there are all these kinds of movies out there i just love it i mean i don't know if it's quite the same anymore but i love it where's that place it's, it's actually touring now uh, see it done now i think movie uh, the book of mormon or the star wars show oh yeah book of mormon oh I, I don't know i don't think it's ever been in the uk i'm not 100 sure actually yeah uh, hasn't yeah it's supposed. I heard. I heard that it was great, and like you know, I did. Uh, uh, the first thing I did was this show that I was talking about. One of the first things that I did was for stage. Certainly was a uh, music man, and that's a that's a big Broadway musical, and people just assume, oh, you must go to all these musicals. But I don't even. I don't love them. You know, I I'm not. I, I do. I grew up listening to them. My mother listened to all the albums and stuff like that. So I knew all the music, but I never got real. I loved the shows. I've done a couple of them and I loved the shows that I did because I knew them growing up. But I don't love a lot of the new stuff. And I even though I heard great things about Book of Mormon, I never quite got to the point where I went to see it, you know. It's just such a saturation these days. And as you get older, you realize your time's precious. Also, if you, I find anyway that this isn't true for everybody, but I don't go, since I've, I don't think I see as many movies or see as many plays as I did before I started doing movies and plays. Like, I think I, it's, it does, I don't know why. Sometimes it feels like I don't need to, you know, sometimes it's just, I'm, I'm more dull. I'd rather be doing other shit, but uh, also it just feels like, oh, I've, I've, it almost feels like I'm going to go watch other, like I got a day off and I'm, so I'm going to just go down to the factory and watch other people like screw in widgets. For- <laughs> I remember. I get yeah. I am, um, before we started doing the podcast, I was on like a movie, I don't know, low, I'd say. But then we started doing this, talking about movies and stuff. And I just, I'm straight, I'm, I'm right back into it again. Well, that's good. You have an excuse too. Yeah, yeah true. I don't know if you can do it over there, but if you're here and you actually, it's your actual job, you can write it off. Tax deductible. <laughs> I love that. 120% of everything you make. Over there. Oh man, it's crazy over here. <laughs> Just drive your check over to Buckingham Palace and put it in the box and then drive away, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I love that. By the way, I'll, I'll ask you. Tax man. Oh yeah, the, ta- the tax man. He's a very, uh, you know, say what you will about him. I, I appreciate the work ethic. I mean, there's 4.3 million self-employed people in this country, and he there's one man dealing with all that because they call him tax man, don't they? Singular. Yeah. <laughs> one guy. That's one hell of a work ethic. Bob, ta- Bob tax. That's it. We're gonna write a film for you. That's it. We'll call him the tax man. It's just. It turns into tax men when you don't pay them. No. <laughs> And then you got, there's, and then, uh, yeah, taxman. You know, like, 
except with taxes instead of uh, claws. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, it's getting a bit late over here. I don't, I don't want to keep you too long, but real quickly, what's your... What time's it there? 11.30 p.m. Oh, God. You guys have school tomorrow. <laughs> Fucking hell. We left school, what, 16 years ago now? Uh, before you ask the final question, Dan, I've had this question bubbling on my brain since we started. It's like, if a studio gave you some money to, to be like, hey, Craig, go make your own film, what would you like dream project be? I've got it. Oh, I've got it. it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I can't tell you what it is, but um, that's it all. No, but it's, uh, I can tell you that, uh, and this isn't by design. It was because it was something that I, I actually came up with uh, a few years ago. One movie I made, I don't know if you've seen, and that's such an American, but it was the Three Stooges. They did like a reboot of the Three Stooges. And yeah, uh, yeah I just played like the, the fop in that, you know, but uh, guys always getting hit by the bus. I was trying to outsmart them and then just ends up getting hit by a bus all the time. <laughs> Um, but I remember I was down there and I, I had a couple of days off. I was in Atlanta, which is, uh, south of where I am between here and Florida and just sort of stuck with nothing to do. And so I just thought, well, I'll make, uh, I had my iPhone with me and I, I write and I want to, you know, make uh, films and stuff like that. So I just figured, well, I'm going to, I'm going to shoot it. I'm going to write a scene, shoot it and then edit it. And I'll just take a couple of days and do that. I'll do everything. And none of the other actors were free, so I had to play the other actor. So I just basically was just me talking to me, and I found a reason to do that. And then one thing led to another, and I thought, huh, huh, and I just ended up writing this movie where it's just me, like, stuck in a room. There's actually a scene, if you, you can find it on YouTube, there was an alternative ending to, um, to 13th Floor. I think there's, I don't know. It's on the DVD. Is, yeah, was it the one where I'm in the concrete room and then it opens up like finally, but I'm in this windowless concrete cell and I just I think meant I, to, I meant to watch the extras. I fell asleep listening to the commentary, but I didn't see it. I don't. I never listened to the commentary and I don't know if I saw the extras. I think that, I think it is on the extras, but there was this, yeah, it was this, it's, it was kind of a fake out, but it was, um, I end up in this concrete, like windowless, doorless it's concrete. Not, it's not on the extras. That's it. I think find it on, on. You know what? I can I can uh, send you the link. Um, if I can find it, I'll send you the link. If not, I'll find the footage one way or another. But it's. Uh, why was I talking about this? Was it because of the other? You talk about the Three Stooges remake and being stuck in a concrete oh, room oh, dream project coming up with this this concept and i uh, but i don't know how i don't know why i started talking about that scene must be it's all right be, you got me you got to keep it under wraps anyway we appreciate that <laughs> i can't tell you what that thing was about because it just sort of turns up and i've actually been screwed before and i i trust you guys but who knows who's listening but actually had somebody like lift an idea and go off and make something i couldn't believe it it happens. Oh, yeah, no, that that is uh, totally against everything I stand for. <laughs> it's it's really disappointing that it happens and that you have to be careful. But there there are there there are predators out there. You know, you got to be. Oh yeah. 
you know, I've, I've been very naive with my in the early days of my projects, but now that I'm starting to get into it now, it's like I'm finding it so much easier to keep it to myself. Well, if, yeah, if you've written if you've written a book, you have every reason to like post a guard, you know, and, and guard what you've done. You put your life into this, and if somebody yeah. came wrote a cheap version of that just so they could get it out fast, it's it's all good. I, I've got the copyright and everything. I'm good now. You, that's a smart. <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't smart. I just, you know, I shot my mouth off and it was like 20 years later after somebody had asked permission. I said, no, it's uh, yeah, that's kind of gross, but it happens, but you get gun shy and I have a little NDA app. Somebody wants to hear something I send them, you know, I'll send them an app. I'll send them the, the, you know, the non-disclosure contract. Cause I don't, I don't take any chances with that now. Don't blame you. For sure, for sure. Real quickly, I got to ask one question. It's a bit of a segue, but how much fun did you have doing that Oprah Winfrey scene in Scare Movie 4? I loved it. <laughs> you know, that was a great compliment that I, I didn't even realize at the time. But, um, you know, those movies, um, starting with Airplane, the, the Zucker, Abram Zucker movies, um, they're all heavily scripted. They know exactly what they're doing. And, um, you guys are savvier than, than most people think people think movies get made up as you go along or whatever, but what, uh, whatever people think, but no, everything is fully scripted. It's like any other movie and it's just a different style. But in that movie, I think he could tell, I like to improvise and I loved, and then I could do it. You know, it wasn't just like an idea. So there was two scenes, that scene, the Oprah scene, um, I mean, it was written out. It just wasn't supposed to have all that ins other insane. I think it was he goes, basically he sits down and goes right to the crazy running back and forth, swinging on the rope and then bring <laughs> in and out. And I was just like, no, 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 no. I've got some ideas. Let me just at least get these ideas out. He just said, let me go out there and just go nuts, you know. And they found that that actress was really great who played Oprah. I mean, she looked just like her and she did such a great job. We were going to do like the wrist breaking and all that stuff. All of that was written in, but all this stuff where I take a swing at her and hit myself, you know, all that shit and flipping over the couch. And I had so much fun. Oh, fucking a shoe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the bit with the fucking nipples. <laughs> what it was, it was like, I used to say to people like, I destiny is to beat you to death with this shoe. And just to see what the reaction would be, just because I like, you know, it was a, if it was a friend, I wouldn't scare somebody on the street like that. But like, I got obsessed with the shoe. <laughs> like, oh, go fuck a shoe. What do I care? And then to actually be able to like fit it into something that I was going to do and uh, knowing that people were going to spend millions of dollars shooting me. Fun. I mean, I was having more fun than anybody else. But all, but then there was other stuff. Like, I think lifting her skirt up, I think that was in the script. I know the stuff that I, that like, and he let me go. And the other one that he let me go on, uh, and it just so happened that the other actor also improvised, was when I'm trying to get out. Oh, the other guy's trying to get into the car. I'm like, get into the car. Get into the car. If you want to live, get into the car. And in, this, in the original movie, War of the Worlds, the guy's like, you can't, what are you doing? And he doesn't see that he's going to get killed. And so I drive off, you know, that, or Tom Cruise drives off with the kids. And in this movie, we just, I don't, there might have been a little bit of like, he misses it. But I just went, I think this could go for the rest of the movie. If it was me, of him try, just going, don't do it. I, like, just that, that shit cracks me up. It kills me. 
you know, the, the little, like those little petty annoyances that you, you recognize from daily life and all of a sudden it's invaded a big movie like this at like a critical moment. Shit like that really, really makes me laugh. And um, so he let me go on for a long time in Scary Movie 4. It's kind of, it's much longer. Uh, and But he actually had a cut of the film and I think somebody talked him out of it, but it was like twice as long. It just kept going. And he just... He loved it because it was like you thought it was over and then it just kept going. And then it was funny that we kept going. It wasn't even funny anymore. It was just so absurd that we were, you know, that they, they, they kept it that long. I love stuff like that. Yeah. And I, I love that he, that he took a chance with it because it's a franchise and they know what their audience likes, but he still was like letting somebody come to him with something new. That's, a, that's good filmmaking, I think. I love the bit as well where like, Tom Ryan works as a crane operator and he's in the pub and he goes over to a little arcade crane machine. <laughs> you know, and do you know Kevin Hart is yeah. in that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. They did the um, Brokeback Mountain scene. Oh, God. Yeah. They, those the tents just going <laughs> at the end. Oh, man. They were hilarious. Uh, and yeah, Anna was terrific. Well, the whole cast was great. The little kids, I thought, were terrific. Oh, they, 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 they played straight well as well. What's that? <clears throat> they played straight really well, the kids. Really great. Um, there was one scene where, um, oh, who is the actor? Uh, it's the Tim Robbins part. Um, yeah. <laughs> or in the village. No, it was what we find like a we go to like the outskirts and it's like a guy, like a scary guy, Michael Masden, Michael Masden. That's it. Excellent actor. And he was up for any, he was absolutely up for anything. He knew what his image was, you know, from like reservoir dogs, really scary. He's just like, however you want to use it, man, it was great. He was up for anything. And there was a scene where I sit down and it's in the dark and I'm realizing this guy's crazy, you know, and I got to get my kids out of here. And, um, and I remember it was really intense in the movie. And I actually listened to the, it was originally a radio drama, War yeah, of the World. Yeah, I remember Awesome Wells. Yeah. And I listened, I've listened to that twice. It's actually kind of creepy. You know the but story. Really, out in New York, people, they really thought it was real. Yeah. People running. Yeah. yeah. And it's, but it's really dark and it's basically the end of the world, you know, and then all of a sudden they, you know, they figure out this, you know, he walks into Central Park and realizes he's got, they're all dying. You know, because what was it? They get like the flu or birds or something. I can't remember what it was. But um, so we had a thing where I sat down opposite him and we played the scene. And it was kind of funny. And I I just we shot it. There's somewhere there's a version of it or maybe it's on the extras. But I sat down and I'm kind of waiting for him. And I think he's in the dark and I hear him go. Whatever he said, but he goes, maybe you could get off my lap. And I look around and I'm sitting on his lap at <laughs> <laughs> it it might be on the extras but they didn't put it in but i love i love stuff like that i love that he would do it yeah you'd think that michael Marsden would be in the actual steven spielberg movie he's, he's of that standard he could have yeah well that's what they were looking for i think they kind of i don't know if they went the other way with i'm trying to think if there was anybody in the movie that was no they were really careful about it do they have uh, Mike Tyson? That's Mike Tyson. It's cross-dressing in, in the in the ring with Anna Faris when, when she, yeah, and she has a flashback, was, and they're all breaking their necks. 
they, they used impersonators like they used a Michael Jackson impersonator who's <laughs> best. That, in the that's world. not Mike Tyson. I don't think it's Tyson. No, oh, I think Tyson. fucking hell. Yeah, I think it would have. Well, they fooled you. I mean, it worked. But that I think, <laughs> it I think Tyson, and, and it was like it had to be Mike Tyson. But uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't think so. They got at the beginning. They had Shaq. Oh yeah, yeah, Doctor Phil. Doctor. And they got. They always get somebody. Uh, but I think as the movies started to get less popular certainly by from what i'd heard about five like if they didn't have all that it also wasn't the same director they went to another director and it just wasn't as appealing i haven't even watched five i don't think i can bring myself to do it man yeah we we ended up on a high note with yourself yeah yeah and again you know the uh you know it was the first r-rated movie we watched because we were 14 at the time and sean and i we've been friends since we were 12 we were just rolling on the floor that's great yeah, and it's funny that you've sort of we've had this relationship with you sporadically throughout our lives. Scare movie four, like first R-rated yeah. movie, and then the 13th floor having the big influence on the sort of the sci-fi cyberpunk genre in our writings. That's awesome. Yeah, so yeah, I'm very honored. Uh, we don't want to keep you waiting any longer, so we're going to wrap up soon. But again, well, if you have, if there's anything else uh, to talk about, or uh, what's your favorite movie? I don't. I have so much trouble with that stuff because it, it always changes, and I don't have any favorites. But I love there are movies that I love. I, I don't know if it's the best movie ever made, but I, I think one of my favorites is Jaws. I think Jaws would be right up there. They showed and said that. Yeah. And, and it's it's really funny, and the actors are terrific. And yeah, Jaws uh, is a great film. Oh man! I and and you know there was there was a play. I think it was in London, but they there's a play about the making of Jaws. It's the three guys in the you know in the boat, the three actors, because um, I know they didn't get along. You know, there was a lot of like stuff where they yeah. testing each other. They just didn't like each other. But it and it kind of I think isn't I think um, Robert Shaw, who's amazing, Brit, uh, was kind of just like he's one of those actors that like to test the other actors. You know. He just liked to get people, and uh, and and he, and it was easy, I guess, to to uh, to wind Richard Dreyfus up, and <laughs> or Roy Scheider's watching the whole thing. But it was actually added to it, you know. Uh, I think Robert Shaw like said something, uh, like he was he was walking onto the uh, boat. He was a big drinker, and he was walking onto the boat. And he had like his cocktail. He was like, "Can I get a little help?" And uh, Richard Dreyfuss said, you want some help? And he grabbed the, the drink and he threw it into the ocean. It, all the guys on the set who drank just went, oh, because they knew he's going to get killed, but also like, what a waste. You know, I had a nice glass of scotch. And they just hated each other, apparently. But I think I think they had like a detente. There was a there was recently, I think a few years ago, Dreyfus was on the Graham Norton show, right? Is that still there? Graham Norton, right? Still yeah, going. Still going, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was on the Graham Norton show and and there was a, like, I think it was um, Robert Shaw's granddaughter was in the audience and he started crying because he just said, I want to talk to you afterwards and tell you all about your your grandfather. And fact, oh, he had, you know, there was a lot of, sweet. Like, yeah, it was really nice. 
what was it? It was called the shark. The shark isn't working or something like that. Bruce, that. Bruce is broken, wasn't he? Bruce, is that the name of it? Bruce is broken. It was something like that. They called it the shark because whatever the play ran over there, it might be running. You guys like it. Oops. That's why I saw Sean's batteries going. Oh. Yeah. I think I think it was called uh, I think the shark was called Bruce. I might be wrong yeah. on that, but yeah, it was one of those. What um, what was his name? The guy that does all the paintings. Happy little accident. What yeah. was what was his painter's name? Bob Ross. That was it. So oh, Bob, Bob Ross. Bob Ross uses the expression "happy little accidents," and that shark not working was a happy accident because it built up the yeah. suspense. And that is the same. Do you draw too? Nah, I can't draw for us a shit. Stick man. I draw, but yeah, yeah, those happy little actions. Same thing when you're working, you know, that same thing. Like it, you, you find those, that's why I love, uh, you know, any kind of art is those, you're waiting for those little moments where, you know, something just happens and it's a better idea than you've ever. Serendipity you know? in it. Yeah. You're yeah. just kind of in the, you know, and you kind of, anything that comes your way. That's exciting. When people say to me, like, oh, well, even I've said in the past, like, oh, I wish I could have changed a particular moment in my past, but it's like, but because of the butterfly effect, it would have changed everything today. Exactly. I've heard, I've heard that from a lot of people, you know, uh, oh, I wish I'd never done this. Well, you wouldn't be in this exact moment. You wouldn't know that that wasn't a good thing. Mm. That might've happened to you later. Cause you, you learned early enough that that wasn't good. People want to like, it's funny. People look at unpleasant experiences in their life as something bad when actually it's it got you to a better way of being or thinking or wherever you are but there's there's no version of that not happening you know that's what i mean that's what i say try and explain to people who are easily offended these days of thinking it's good to be offended because it further reinforces your values of what you we're we're uh yeah we're arc i don't know what if it's the same thing in london but this whole woke culture thing in america is it's it's horrible for art it's horrible for film horrible for comedy um there's a you know there was were you guys into norm mcdonald did you know him over there at yeah, all loved yeah him. yeah horrible horrible to lose him i mean i he's he was a master comedy master and i mean there really was such genius there and and uh but also he was he would he had to be really careful his way of thinking was just whatever, you know, he loved to throw people off and he loved to question whatever was normal. I mean, the great role of a comedian, if somebody's really good, was they get everybody, you know, they show you a reflection of how absurd you're being, basically. Yes. And yeah, I think that's what a really good comedian will do. Some, you know, a decent comedian will make you laugh, but a really great comedian comes along every once in a while. Uh, I'm not sure, I'm trying to think of, I used to know a lot more British comedians than I do, but, but, but certainly from your past, I mean, um, like Monty Python, I think part of the reason that they were so famous was that they just questioned everything that was kind of uh, crazy about your culture. Yeah. I mean, old tropes that weren't useful anymore, but they were part of the old guard and people I think had affection for like an older way of being. My and, dad, my dad told me the uproar in the, in 77 when uh, the life of Brian came out. Oh. An absolute uproar. You should see it but again, go to YouTube. And if you look up Monty Python life of Brian, they keep it's Michael Palin and John Cleese 
actually meeting with like the archbishop at the time. I can't remember his name, but the, and then some other guy, but two guys up on the church in this talk show. And it's fascinating. And these two guys make such fools of themselves, not Cleese and Palin. They're, they're actually holding it together pretty well. You can't believe these guys are offended. And they go, did you see the film? And they said, we look at such second rate trash. You know, what, how, what, are, what are you talking about? You haven't even seen it. You know, I love that. Monty. Really, but it was just on principle and it's actually not about Christ. It was, it was really, uh, but it's fascinating. It's a great yeah. thing to see. It was more about hero worship and the sort of bureaucracy that yeah. was going on back then. They were, and they, there's, I think they showed in this, don't they in the movie, they, they, you see a little bit of Sermon on the Mount, but you never, they said they had a decent actor who was playing Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount was, was, it was done straight. They were always respectful to Christ because they thought Christ, they actually were going to make, try to make a, you know, a Holy Grail movie about Christ, but they realized it's not funny. He's like, He's too cool a guy to make fun of. It's the people's reaction to Christianity that's absurd. And so they had like at the back of the crowd, those guys who were the people were just like, why well, say? Blessed yeah. are the cheesemakers. Cheese <laughs> <laughs> and, and that goes to show the sort of, you know, the bastardization of religion over, over the centuries, you know? Yes. And I love that. And I love the, the biggest dickest is what gets me every time. Oh, <laughs> those extras trying to keep it together. Oh man, yeah. you think it's risible when I say the name? Bigger stickles, visible. Like he had a trouble with those R's. Yeah, he yeah. was kind of. He had a wife, you know. <laughs> well, you know it's funny. I I don't want to give too much away in my book, but there's a there's a scene where there's a guy going on a gun spree. He just go he, he, a bit like Michael Douglas falling down, kind of that sort of tone. But he has a speech impediment. And just for a joke, I thought, I'm going to try and have him say really like, like big four syllable words for no reason. And uh, it just made it funny, unintentionally funny. Great. I love stuff like that. So I thought he's got a speech impediment. Why would he use these big words? One of them was reunification. <laughs> he struggles to say the word. Yeah. Reunification. It's like, I remember uh, the first time I ever saw, because I think comedy can sometimes be used to make a scary movie, not and not the way that I made a scary movie, but uh, the one that we were discussing, but like a genuinely intense movie, even more intense. Like if you've ever seen Bonnie and Clyde, did you ever see that with Warren? No. Great movie. And um, well, the first movie that Gene Wilder was in. So it's this intense drama. And... Um, and they, I remember when they made it, they were really into like, it, it, um, they didn't want to make a movie that was at all pro-gun because, you know, it was made in the late 60s. So there was, there were a lot of riots and unrest and stuff like that. And they're making a movie that's taking place in the 30s, but they wanted it to speak to a modern audience and they wanted, they didn't want to glorify guns the way that you know, like war movies had. So they had, uh, or like gangster movies, they wanted it to be the opposite so that when, you know, the two heroes or anti-heroes buy it in the end, like the sound of guns or like you really hear the, you know, like it's sort of like what Spielberg did with um, Saving Private Ryan, like that first scene on the beach. Oh, yeah. That's not like a war movie. That's like, we're going to take as close as we can. It's just, it was, it's, you never knew what was coming. And the, it was horror, it was pure horror. And, uh, and 
in the middle of that to have some a character I mean nobody knew who Gene Wilder was but you could as soon as you see him he's too soft for this world and he's he doesn't belong there but they've kind of kidnapped him along with these other people and and horrible things happen to them horrible horrible things but they're kind of comic characters and they went on to be great comic like certainly Gene Wilder went on to be a great comic actor but in this movie the comedy is used it almost makes everything more absurd and 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 crazy and scary it's it's close it makes it closer to like you don't laugh at the joker he's not like a clown he's not there to make you laugh he's he's trying to scare you like war paint that's the feeling that you get like it's too work to play to something that doesn't fit in this world and you actually worry for this guy yeah it's it's a special kind of talent to have whether it be a filmmaker or writer or an actor to be able to be so passionate about the thing that you're doing to be able to break it down into in its fundamental forms and to say why did why am i doing this how did because the most dangerous thing is you 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 feel inspired by some, by source material or um, some guy reads your book decides he wants to make a film out of it and um, has to you know that's he's beginning a two year process so if everything goes right in two years after he gets all the money and gets all the production design set. Now he's on the set and he's got to begin directing. He's got to find what it was that originally that feeling that you aroused him that made him want, provoked him to do all this stuff. That's just discipline, I think, you know, yeah. and uh, keep, and to be able to um, uh, like, like you said, you're injecting bits of insert absurd humor that would, that would something like that would work in a movie. If it was placed inside of a scene that was really, really intense and then something like that happens and provokes an uneasy laugh that actually makes after the laugh, it kind of gets caught in your throat and you get a little, you sink a little further down into the drama. I mean, I, I think the guy who directed uh, Bonnie and Clyde, who was, um, was Arthur Penn, I think they knew exactly what, what they were doing. Like they cast these people who, you know, actually were great with comedy, but they're entering a dark world. So really what he's doing is he's setting these, these people are defenseless and you realize they're just um, fish in a barrel, really. They don't have a chance. And it's, you know, and then it, it's, it works on so many levels. You, 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 you love Bonnie and Clyde because they're played by, you know, uh, Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway, who's like drop dead gorgeous in this thing. And, and you love them, but they're the bad guys. And so you have to see them being abusive too. And then they get, you know, they sort of get theirs in the end. And you, it's a very confusing movie. It's very emotional. We'll check it out because I am curious now. You have piqued my interest. Thanks. Yeah. So I'll be sure to check that out. Well, uh, Craig, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I have a feeling, you know, I'll pass, we'll cross again soon enough. I hope, hope so. It's nice to all these years, you know, you've seen someone on the screen and you, here I am talking to you. So it's nice. It's funny how the universe works. It's great. It's a great thing. It's a, uh, it means a lot to me. I don't take that lightly. So I'm glad and I hope our paths do cross again. And best and of luck with uh, best of luck with your upcoming project. Oh. Listen, so I say again. What do you what what album what album is he listening to? Oh, it's just some <laughs> I, 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 you can hear it, Jesus. Uh, it's just some like chill, jazzy hip hop stuff I just put on in the background to soothe my soul. I get nervous, you know. <laughs> 
I try to keep it low so no one can hear it. Fuck it. <laughs> oh, it's a pleasure. Right. Pleasure to meet you. Like, but I hope we can do it again. Thanks a lot. I apologize for the audio problems that we might have had. Oh, no, yeah, that was smooth. That was smooth sailing. Man. <laughs> we yeah. were squares bouncing around. Like, we got it. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, best of luck with your future project. I know it's under wraps, but. Oh, thank you very much. We'll keep an eye out for it. And we'll be there. Yeah. We'll be there on the day release. All right, Craig. Well, I'll, uh, I'll give you a message on Instagram in 10 days' time with a link on Amazon if you're interested. Great. No, I'd love that. I love that. And I'll yeah. help. And I look forward to it. All right. I'll well, start. enjoy the holidays, whether it be Christmas or Hanukkah, whatever it is. Okay. Thank you. You too.